Good afternoon. You're listening to Indigo Radio. This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. It is also streaming live online at www.wvew.org. This is Indigo Radio. We are always deepening understanding and making connections to the world. Um, we're on the air every Sunday at 1 o'clock, and we're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. And you can also find us at on Facebook, um, Twitter, and Instagram on Indigo Radio. And today we have um, Anna Milani as our um, host Nina Kunimoto, myself, and our special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Martina Espada, and I am a poet. I uh, will be appearing at the uh, Brattleboro Literary Festival um, this coming Saturday at 11.30 a.m. I'll be reading with uh, the wonderful poet Doug Anderson at Epsilon Spires, Saturday, 11.30 a.m. for the Brattleboro Literary Festival. Martin, thanks for being with us. We're so happy to have you. You are, uh, this is their second appearance on the show with us here in Brattleboro. The first time you came up was with your wife, Lauren, also a poet. And I just want to say, too, Martina Spada is the winner of the 2018 Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize. You came up soon after you had won that award. That uh, prize honors a living poet, and you were the first Latino to win that award. Yes. And also with this book, Floaters, that you're going to be reading from today, you won the 2021 National Book Award in Poetry. So we are so excited to have you here today. Well, thank you. It's really good to be back. And I think that we want to have you start off by reading the, the opening poem, or the title poem, I should say, Floaters. Would you like to start off by reading that if there's an introduction you want to make to the poem, or we can talk about it after you've read it? Well, I can say a few words by way of introduction to this poem. This poem began as an argument. There was a photograph that went viral. You may have seen it uh, back in 2019. Two Salvadoran migrants, father and daughter, who came to be known by their first names, Oscar and Valeria, uh, drowned crossing the Rio Grande, uh, June of 2019. Uh, this viral photograph went absolutely everywhere. Uh, it was uh, in the headlines, it was um, on television, and it was on the internet. And it triggered uh, grief, it triggered outrage. It also uh, triggered what we now know as trutherism skepticism from uh, the right. There was uh, a post, an anonymous post, in the I'm 1015 Border Patrol Facebook group charging that this photograph was a fake, was doctored. It's all an invention. Uh, echoes of Alex Jones and Infowars. And so uh, as I mentioned, this poem began for me um, as a response to the photograph, but also particularly as a response to these charges. Mm -hmm. uh, floaters, by the way, 
is uh, part of a certain, shall we say, specialized vocabulary. It's a term used by uh, many members of the Border Patrol to describe those who have drowned crossing over. Um, and so that's where the title of the poem comes from. Then there's also an epigraph before we get into the poem itself. So let's begin here with floaters. Epigraph. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and ask. Have y'all ever seen floaters this clean? I'm not trying to be an ass, but I have never seen floaters like this. Could this be another edited photo? We've all seen the Dems and liberal parties do some pretty sick things. Anonymous post, I'm 1015 Border Patrol Facebook group. Like a beer bottle thrown into the river by a boy too drunk to cry. Like the shard of a styrofoam cup drained of coffee brown as the river. Like the plank of a fishing boat broken in half by the river, the dead float. And the dead have a name. Floaters, say the men of the border patrol, keeping watch all night by the river, hearts pumping coffee as they say the word floaters, soft as a bubble, hard as a shoe, as it nudges the body to see if it breathes, to see if it moans, to see if it sits up and speaks. And the dead have names. A feast day parade of names. Names that dress all in red. Names that twirl skirts. Names that blow whistles. Names that shake rattles. Names that sing in praise of the saints. Say, Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez. Say, Angie Valeria Martinez Avalos, see how they rise off the tongue, the calling of bird to bird somewhere in the trees above our heads, trilling in the dark heart of the leaves. Say what we know of them now they are dead. Oscar slapped dough for pizza with oven-blistered fingers. Daughter Valeria sang, banging a toy guitar. He slipped free of the apron he wore in the blast of the oven, sold the motorcycle he would kick till it sputtered to life, counted off pesos for the journey across the river, and the last of his twenty-five years, and the last of her twenty-three months. There is another name that beats its wings in the heart of the trees. Say, Tanya, Vanessa, Avalos, Oscar's wife, and Valeria's mother, the witness stumbling along the river. Now... Their names rise off her tongue. Say, Oscar y Valeria. He swam from Matamoros across to Brownsville. The girl slung around his neck, stood her in the weeds on the Texas side of the river, swore to return with her mother in hand, turning his back as fathers do, who later say, I turned around and she was gone. In the time it takes for a bird to hop from branch to branch, Valeria jumped in the river after her father. Maybe he called out her name as he swept her up from the river. Maybe the river drowned out his voice as the water swept them away. Tanya called out the names of the saints, but the saints drowsed in the stupor of birds in the dark, their cages covered with blankets. The men on patrol would never hear their pleas for asylum, watching for floaters, hearts pumping coffee all night on the Texas side of the river. No one they say, 
had ever seen floaters this clean. Oscar's black shirt yanked up to the armpits. Valeria's arms slung around her father's neck. Even after the light left her eyes, both faced down in the weeds back on the Mexican side of the river. Another edited photo. See how her head disappears in his shirt, the waterlogged diaper bunched in her pants, the blue of the blue cans. The radio warned us about the crisis actors we see at one school shooting after another. The man called. Oscar will breathe, sit up, speak, tug the black shirt over his head, shower off the mud, and shake hands with the photographer. Yet, the floaters did not float down the Rio Grande like Olympians showing off the backstroke, nor did their souls float up to Dallas, land of rumored jobs and a president shot in the head as he waved from his motorcade. No bubbles rose from their breath in the mud, light as the iridescent circles of soap that would fascinate a two-year-old. And the dead still have names. Names that sing in praise of the saints. Names of flower and blossoms of white. A cortege of names dressed all in black, trailing the coffins to the cemetery. Carve their names in headlines and gravestones they would never know in the kitchens of this cacophonous world. Enter their names in the book of names. Say, Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez. Say, Angie Valeria Martinez Abalos. Bury them in a corner of the cemetery named for the sainted archbishop of the poor, shot in the heart saying mass, bullets bought by the taxes I paid when I worked as a bouncer and fractured my hand forty years ago, and bumper stickers read, El Salvador is Spanish for Vietnam. Mm. When the last bubble of breath escapes the body, May the men who speak of floaters, who have never seen floaters this clean, float through the clouds to the heavens, where they paddle the air as they wait for the saint who flips through the keys on his ring like a drowsy janitor till he fingers the key that turns the lock and shuts the gate on their babble-tongued faces, and they plunge back to earth, a shower of hailstones pelting the river, the Mexican side of the river. Thank you for that. I, I've heard you read that before. I've read it myself, and I feel it as often they say when you hear something a number of times, you just get more and more things from it. And one of the um, questions I wanted to ask you is the importance of naming. And you write, actually, as, as you were reading it, you even use the word name or names named throughout the poem. Could you talk about the importance of that for you in this? Naming humanizes. The tension in the poem is between humanity and dehumanization. And naming humanizes, giving them back their names. I think that's one reason why they came to be known as uh, as Oscar and Valeria, as if we knew them personally. Um, I think it's uh, the counterpoint to that is the fact that this post in the I'm 1015 Border Patrol Facebook group was anonymous. 
right? So there's that, you, you know, that, that cowardice, you know, hiding behind namelessness. But they're not, the point is they're not um, floaters. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can't be reduced to this, to this uh, obscene uh, slur, this, this terminology uh, that is so heartless. Mm-hmm. It can't be reduced to that. Um, and so, you know, there's another counterpoint. You know, the, the, the power of naming is essential, and that's something poetry can do. And also, I was wondering the, if you could describe, there's themes of migration and migrants within this, and I think I saw you speak, I think it was on Democracy Now!, talking about it's also recognizing the descendants of migrants, could you talk about that and also some of your own background? Yes. Uh, well, uh, migration is uh, a very uh, crucial theme of, of the book. Um, obviously, the title poem focuses on, on migrants. There are other poems in the book that do the same. And there's more, because my father uh, was a migrant from the island of Puerto Rico first came over in the year 1939. He ultimately became uh, a documentary photographer uh, and created something called the Puerto Rican Diaspora Documentary Project, a photo documentary of the Puerto Rican migration. Um, His name was Frank Espada, Francisco Luis Espada, went by Frank in this country. He contributed the cover photograph to this book. Clearly, you can't see it on the radio. Um, But the photograph comes from Indeed, this Puerto Rican diaspora documentary project. Uh, the photograph is um, indeed um, uh, of a, uh, a Puerto Rican mushroom worker in Kennet Square, Pennsylvania. His name uh, was Angel Luis Jimenez. And my father encountered him while doing uh, a photo documentary and a photo essay on the mushroom workers of Kennet Square, Pennsylvania in the early 1980s when all the mushroom workers were Puerto Rican. Um, Now I understand they're Mexican. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this man had just been evicted um, and was telling my father what had happened. Um, And he said, Aquí venimos a pasar hambre y amarguras. We come here to suffer hunger and bitterness. Mm -hmm. And the quotation would appear on... um, the wall with the photograph and the exhibits my father ultimately mounted in uh, more than 40 uh, places uh, throughout the United States and uh, then these photographs were ultimately collected in a book called the Puerto Rican Diaspora. So he was a migrant. The photograph on the cover is of uh, someone from a migrant community. The poem, car- the poem floaters is about Salvadoran migrants, but there are also Puerto Rican migrants in the poem in the book. There are migrants from other countries, um, and it, it of course speaks to the wider uh, past and present of immigration in the United States. There's a Sacuan Vanzetti poem in the book, so I'm making that connection going back. Uh, you know, almost 100 years to when they were executed in 1927. Um, So it is a a, a way of of wrestling with these issues, but also finding a way to give these abstract issues a human face. How to to give uh, a big word like migrant or a big word like immigration, um, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, voice, uh, 
face story. I, we would love for you to read the, the poem, the letter to my father. The question I have before, though, is I also read, I think it was um, soon after your father had passed away, it was a, a tribute um, or speech that you talked about your father, and you said before the young lords there was Frank Espada. Mm-hmm. And I think that I teach a lot about the young lords because I am in public health, and so I talk about their health activism. and. Could you tell our listeners, because I think a lot of people also don't know who the Young Lords were, but if you could talk about them, but then talk about your father and what you said. What I'm referring to is the history of Puerto Rican activism in the United States. And uh, for many people who, who, who study Puerto Rican activism at all, uh, that history begins... Uh, you know, right around 1969, 1970, 1971, you know, with the Young Lords. And the Young Lords was uh, a, a, a militant uh, organization. Um, they uh, were, were founded in Chicago and then ultimately made their mark in New York City. And um, they were hellraisers. It's the best way to put it. They were hellraisers. And so they organized around public health issues, as you point out, with a takeover of Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx, and uh, you know they 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 organized around all kinds of other issues as well. They only lasted a few years, um, but that that seems to be the starting point for a lot of people who have uh, some sense of the Puerto Rican community. Well, my father was an activist. Uh, in the late 50s. He was an activist in the early 60s. There was a whole generation of Puerto Rican activists in the United States or who were born in Puerto Rico and then migrated, like my father. And they were born, you know, these these are activists who were born, as my father was born in 1930, so sort of, you know, between 1930, 1935, and they came of age in the 50s and 60s. And that was the first generation of hellraisers in the Puerto Rican community. And my father was, um, for example, he was involved in uh, everything from, uh, from welfare rights to um, the battle for uh, fair housing to uh, civil rights more generally. My father was uh, among the leaders of the New York delegation to the March on Washington, for example. My father was the, uh, was ultimately got involved with organizations like the New York Urban Coalition. Um, he uh, was uh, uh, also taking pictures of everything he saw. And so at first, it was a matter of, of documenting the, the neighborhood, we, you know, I was born and grew up in the East New York section of Brooklyn. So that's not nice Brooklyn, right? That's that's not when we think of Brooklyn now. We think it's, it's almost like a brand, Brooklyn, right? You can sell something in Vermont by calling it Brooklyn, Brooklyn coffee, and people Brooklyn pizza, right? People would flock to it because it sounds authentic. No, all right. This is not that kind of Brooklyn. This is not Park Slope. You know, this is this is East New York, right? These are the projects, the Linden projects in particular. And uh, my father, that's where his activism began, with a, a storefront called East New York Action. 
and you know organizing around local issues local problems facing that community um, and that's how I was politicized mm. that's how I was politicized you know I grew up with it I thought everybody was like that you know uh, I attended my first demonstration when I was nine years old you know and I remember it was a it was a, a homicide in in the community a man named Agropino Juanillo uh, short order cook with ten kids was walking home from work and was surrounded by uh, drug addicts who demanded money and when he didn't have any, they killed him. And so my father, along with the local clergy, actually organized a demonstration, a marching candlelight vigil to the spot where he was killed on Alabama Avenue. Um, and I was there, nine years old, and I remember, you know, holding the candles and the, and the candles going out over and over again because it was raining that night. And how people would gather in these uh, circles and light the candles again. And then we'd keep going and the candles would go out and light them again and go out and light them again. And then as the sun went down and it got dark, um, suddenly I could see candles bobbing as they came down from the buildings. Uh, People uh, were joining us in the street as we marched. All I could see was the candles. And what started off as a march of maybe a hundred or so people grew and grew into the thousands mm. as we approached the spot where he was murdered, Agropino uh, Juanillo. And my father made a speech, and uh, my mother threw money into a wooden box on a stoop uh, where People were taking up a collection for the family of this murdered man. It turned out years later my father had photographed him. And we were unaware at the time. And somebody pointed to a photograph my father had taken. He was calling an old man in a, door, in a doorway. And someone said, that's him. That's, that's Bonillo. That's how I grew up. So I grew up with an ethos of resistance all around me. But more to the point, I grew up watching an artist use his art on behalf of his community and what grew into the Puerto Rican diaspora documentary project. And by the way, his photographs are now collected in the Smithsonian Museum of American Art, Smithsonian Museum of American History, uh, the National Portrait Gallery, and the Library of Congress. Not bad. Yeah. Could you read us that poem, Letter to My Father? Sure, as long as I've been going on and on and on about him. Uh, as you can see, never quite got over his absence. Mm. You know, I still miss him. Yeah. And uh, anybody who knows anything about grief knows that it comes in waves, and uh, it, uh, sometimes it never quite goes away. Yeah. So um, I I want to talk to him. I still want to talk to him. He was quite a talker. <laughs> he used to talk in italics <laughs> and um, everything that uh, every quote in the poem from him is something he actually said I didn't make up any of it mm. so what happened was this my father was born in, in a mountain town called Utuado in Puerto Rico way up in the mountains and um, I remember making a pilgrimage with him back to that place where he was born and when Hurricane Maria hit in uh, the fall of 2017, 
like Oscar and Valeria, suddenly saw Utualo everywhere. Once again, in the headlines and the, the internet, TV. Um, there was a journalist named John Lee Anderson who wrote that uh, Utualo had become a byword for the island's devastation. Mm. And let's not forget there are estimates, reliable ones, that say 4,000 people died. Uh, and we all know about the you know, outrageous uh, neglect and worse on the part of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. So I started talking to my father. And, you know, it's not unusual to talk to the dead, especially if you happen to have their ashes in a box on your bookshelf. And so it's a physical act during this conversation with the box. And that is how this poem came about. Um, so, because I, I, I wanted to tell him what was happening and I wanted him to do something about it. So this is a letter to my father, October 2017. You once said, my reward for this life would be a thousand pounds of dirt shoveled in my face. You were wrong. You are seven pounds of ashes in a box, a Puerto Rican flag wrapped around you next to a red brick from the house in Utuala we were born, all crammed together on my bookshelf. You taught me there is no God no life after this life, so I know you're not watching me type this letter over my shoulder. When I was a boy, you were God. I watched from the seventh floor of the projects as you walked down into the street to stop a public execution. A big man caught a small man stealing his car, and everyone in Brooklyn heard the car alarm wail of the condemned, he's killing me. At a word from you, the executioner's hand slipped from the hair of the thief. The kid was high, was all you said when you came back to us. When I was a boy, and you were God, we flew to Puerto Rico. You said, my grandfather was the mayor of Utualo. His name was Buenaventura. That means good fortune. I believed in your grandfather's name. I heard the tree frogs chanting to each other all night. I saw banana leaf and elephant palms sprouting from the mountain's belly. I gnawed the mango's pit, and the sweet yellow hair stuck between my teeth. I said to you, You came from another planet. How'd you do it? You said, Every morning, just before I woke up, I saw the mountains. Every morning, I see the mountains. And Utuado, three sisters, all in their seventies, all bedridden, all pentecostales, who only left the house for church, lay sleeping on mattresses spread across the floor when the hurricane gutted the mountain the way a butcher slices open a dangled pig and a rolling wall of mud buried them, leaving the four sisters to stagger into the street, screaming like an unheeded prophet about the end of the world. Eutualo, a man who cultivated a garden of aguacate and carambola, feeding the avocado and star fruit to his nieces from New York so the trees in his garden be headed all at once like the soldiers of a beaten army. And so 
hanged himself. Eutualo, a welder and a handyman, rigged a pulley with a shopping cart to ferry rice and beans across the river where the bridge collapsed, witnessed the cart swaying above so many hands that raised the sign that told the helicopters, Campamento los Olvidados, Camp of the Forgotten. Los Olvidados wait seven hours in line for a government meal of skittles and Vienna sausage or a tarp to cover the bones of a house with no roof as the fungus grows on their skin from sleeping on mattresses drenched with the spit of the hurricane. They drink the brown water waiting for microscopic monsters in their bellies to visit plagues upon them. A nurse says, these people are going to have an epidemic. These people are going to die. The president flips rolls of paper towels to a crowd at a church in Wainawo, Zeus lobbing thunderbolts on the locked ward of his delusions. Down the block, cousin Ricardo, Bernice's boy, says that somebody stole his can of diesel. I heard somebody ask you once what Puerto Rico needed to be free. And you said, Tres pulgadas de sangre en la calle. Three inches of blood in the street. Now, three inches of mud flow through the streets of Utualo, and troops patrol the town, as if guarding the vein of copper in the ground, as if a shovel digging graves in the backyard might strike the ore below, as if La Brigada swinging machetes to clear the road might remember the last uprising. I know you are not God. I have the proof. Seven pounds of ashes in a box on my bookshelf. Gods do not die. And yet, I want you to be God again. Stride from the crowd to seize the president's arm before another roll of paper towel sails away. Thunder, Spanish obscenities in his face. Banish him to a roofless rainstorm in Utualo so he unravels one soaked sheet after another till there is nothing left but his cardboard heart. I promised myself I would stop talking to you, white box of gray grit. You were deaf even before you died. Hear my promise now. I will take you to the mountains where houses lost like ships at sea rise blue and yellow from the mud. I will open my hands. I will scatter your ashes. Thank you. Thank you. That is uh, Martina Spada you're listening to here for the hour and before we uh, go to a song break I just wanted to ask you because you when talking about your father before you read the poem you talked about how his art um, his photography on behalf of the community and the interlinking of those and do you see your own art and poetry as carrying on his legacy and also as a um, on behalf of your community oh well yes absolutely um it is a legacy I inherited, and I do carry it on in my own way. Um, I wish I could take photographs. I can't. Uh, so what I do is uh, use uh, a different sort of image. Um, this is, of course, the image of 
poetry. And of course, when I uh, speak of the image of poetry, I'm speaking of all five senses, not only the visual. But yes, absolutely, I'm carrying on a legacy, um, one that I am uh, quite proud to inherit. Um, so, is uh, at the same time, yes, I'm very conscious of, of uh, doing so on behalf of a community, a community that, that still needs advocacy. Uh, it's it, uh, amazingly, you know, there was just another hurricane, Hurricane Fiona. And while this was a Category 1 storm that did not cause nearly as much damage as Hurricane Maria, the reality is that the grid collapsed again because the grid was never, uh, never dealt with in the first place. It was privatized instead of repaired. And, uh, you know, at the same time, there are, there are, there are, there are people who still living in Puerto Rico whose, whose, who, whose houses whose, you know, were never repaired. There is a, Puerto Rico never recovered from Maria. And so even though Hurricane Fiona did not have the same lethal ferocity as Maria, um, it, it devastated a place that was already devastated to begin with. It's devastated in so many ways. It's devastated environmentally. It's de devastated politically. It's devastated economically. It's devastated culturally. It's causing, and there'll be, there'll be more people leaving now. And, and we, have, we see more, you know, sort of... Uh, predatory vulture capitalists moving in every day um, due to the fact that they are welcome there. You know, and the, I won't get into that because it's way, you only have, uh, we only have a half an hour, whatever it is. Um, but, but yes, um, you know, above all, it must be remembered, this is a colony of the United States. And, um, and colonialism uh, is, is not only racist, it can be fatal. Yeah. And that's, that's where that poem goes. Yeah. I mean, I, what I love actually about that, I know, you know, we have limited time here, but I think that also is, and, and we're going to get to this when we come back after a break, as educators, is the use of poetry and being able to then open up a conversation and, uh, for instance, a whole conversation around privatization or colonization and, and how poetry, when it's on behalf of a community or talking about community and these issues, it can just open that up. Absolutely. And, and do it in a way that's different, you know, so it's not, it's not just coming in, uh, you know, on this cerebral or abstract level. Again, it's, it's, you know, it's coming in through the eyes, it's coming in through the ears, um, you know, and, and it's hopefully uh, changing the way people feel about, uh, about a situation or about the story I'm telling. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Okay, um, so we're going to go on a song break. You're listening to Indigo Radio. I'm going to just go into the second song, just because we were talking about Puerto Rico. Yeah. So the second song is Viva Puerto Rico Libre by Rebel Diaz. Um, I mean, Rebel Diaz is a group um, out of Chile, and they sing a lot of songs that are very political. And there's a quote here, for us to be able to reinterpret that song and feature divine RBG in defense of Puerto Rico is a blessing, a connection that we wanted to make between the struggles of the 70s and hip hop and Puerto Rico liberation movement. We're calling for a revolutionary culture that we're able to support and be in conversation for political and social movements. So here we go. Viva Puerto Rico. Desde la entraña, 
a nuestra querida isla, hermana, camarada, solidaridad, ya, ya. Hey. Pero estoy cansado Hasta cuando aceptamos seguir como esclavo No quiero vivir comiendo miga No quiero llorar por nuestra vida Si no luchamos no sobrevivimos If we don't struggle we die in my people Hasta cuando compañeros vamos a seguir siendo Lo que olvida la tortura el infierno Yo no quiero colonización Solo quiero liberación Don Pedro Albizu lo dijo mejor No importa ser fuerte si no hay valor We must be brave, united hermanos South Bronx to the north of Chicago Mad love to la isla del encanto Ghetto brothers, take it out with the canto Dear Benji, since you've been gone We've been hit with a terrible storm, the guns is drawn, the war is on, and we still don't know what side we on, we've been fighting for pound water, they stopped our supplies at borders, our nights is hard, Rosario's daughter, had a baby on the couch in the flood of the corner of the house, Maria blew the hood and the fucking roof out, the president be saying shit, he bug the fuck out, we hungry like wild wolves from the front of mouth, everything's gone now, it's really on now. The roots of the trees of the land that you love has totally been torn out. Yeah, Hunts Point to Humble Park, growing up PR wasn't far but all, had it in my heart. Una vida internacional, amor a toda la diáspora. Oscar un mito, un paseo boricua, escuchando historias sobre Lolita. Bate urbano organizando en los barrios de Chicago. Luego Filiberto asesinado. En New York, the feds went wild. Sopinos, investigaciones. Talking the doors of a few other homies. No cooperamos, colonizadores. Nunca hablamos con los opresores. Oye, defend the PR hasta la muerte. With my brothers, words of yellow, Benji, yo. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP, Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station, and you're listening to Indigo Radio. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. Anna. Thank you all for being us, with us today. And we have uh, award-winning poet Martina Espada in the studio. We're so uh, grateful to have you here. We don't often have people 
in the studio, especially uh, post or not post pandemic, because we're still in it, but that changed a lot of things. So it's really nice to have you here. Martina is going to be uh, speaking, reading his poetry at the Brattleboro Literary Festival. And that is going to happen uh, Saturday, October 15th. So that's next Saturday at 1130 at Epsilon Spires. And he's going to be reading with uh, the poet Doug Anderson. And if you haven't seen Martin uh, read his poetry, I have. I, I saw you at UMass probably six months ago. And uh, it was a really incredible reading, actually. I think it was awesome to, it was the first time I'd seen you read in person, so it was really great to be there. Could you tell us who Doug Anderson is, who you're going to be reading with? Yes, uh, Doug Anderson is best known as a, a Vietnam veteran poet. Um, his first book was called The Moon Reflected Fire uh, from Alice James. Absolutely uh, wrenching, extraordinary collection of poems. Uh, focused uh, primarily on the Vietnam War, although uh, there's also an amazing sequence in that book um, called Raison Homer, where he, uh, he uh, takes a, a revisionist look at um, that mythology. Um, and uh, he has uh, uh, got a new book out um, with Fourway called Undress, She Said, where he, among other things, is uh, not only returning to themes of Vietnam, but now examining what it means to grow old. Mm. And extraordinarily poignant poems. You know, he's about to turn 80, mm. you know. Um, and very moving as he reflects upon mortality and the body um, and uh, does so with, uh, with anger and humor. And, you know, there's a strong political sensibility in his work, too. So we'll be reading together, as you point out, uh, Saturday, 1130 at Epsilon Spires, which I, I passed on the way here while I was sitting in traffic. <laughs> I didn't know you had traffic in Brattleboro. <laughs> Extraordinary. It's like midtown Manhattan today. I know, right? So, but it, Busy weekend in Brattleboro. What yeah. is going on? Tensions high. On the tensions yes. tensions <laughs> are high. Yes. Uh, Anna was saving a parking spot for me and it was almost flattened by <laughs> angry driver uh, this is vermont what's going I know, on Christine? i know well martin we would love to talk to you about teaching uh, nina and i are both educators and we work um, we're faculty with the spark teacher training institute here in southern vermont nina also teaches all over vermont at, at vermont community college um, i'm teaching right now at clark university in worcester mass I know both of us use poetry in our teaching, but also within this show, we're always trying to, how do we get the world into our classroom? How do we mm. um, tell the students the truth of the world and get them to think about it? And so we would love to have you uh, read this poem, Abad with Concussion. Did I say that correctly? You did. Great. And then talk a little bit about teaching. Absolutely. Um, my wife, uh, Lauren, is... Um, First of all, uh, a writer. She's got four books of poems to her credit. She's been on this show. She now has a novel out there in the world with an agent. So we're expecting good news any day now. That's great. Um, she's also got 20 years experience teaching. And she has taught everywhere and especially a secondary school 
um, and mostly urban education from Patterson, New Jersey uh, to Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, she's taught adult literacy um, and uh, she, I, there's nothing she can't teach. I'm always amazed by this. I, I say, well, you know, if you handed her a manual and said, fix my car, <laughs> she not only could fix your car, she could build you one. You know, it's extraordinary. And then she could teach you how to do it, you know. So she's currently uh, teaching humanities and in a very small independent school uh, called the Academy of Charlemont, which is right up the road from where we live in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, we have sort of moved around in Western Mass living in various places. Uh, and we lived in a, before that, we lived in a, a town called Leverett. We rented from an unscrupulous landlord. Mm. And that's the setting for this poem. Um, in order to go and teach in Springfield, she had to get up in the dark and come home in the dark, mm. which could be quite perilous during the winter, especially if the landlord did not attend to the duties of cleaning the driveway. So... Um, and Abad is a French verse poem. And it has to do, typically, with the parting of lovers at dawn. So this poem puts a spin on that because it's called, what? Abad with concussion. Epigraph. Poverty is black ice. Naomi Ajala. You leave me sleeping in the dark. You kiss me and I stir, fingers in your hair, eyes open, unseeing. You leave me asleep every morning, commuting to the school in the city at sunrise. The landlord's driveway, a muddy creek, ices over hard after the freezing rain clatters all night. Your feet fly up, your head slamming the ground, an eclipse of the sun flooding your eyes. You sleep under the car. No one knows how long you sleep. You awake with a hundred ice picks stabbing your eardrums. You awake, coat and hair soaked, and somehow drive to school. You remember to turn left at the Smith & Wesson factory. The other teachers lead you by the elbow to Mercy Hospital. Will you pause when the nurse asks your name? Will you claim your pain level is a four? And they slide you into the white coffin of an MRI machine. You hold your breath. They film your brain. Concussion. The word we use for the boxer plunging face first to the canvas after the uppercut blindsided him, not the teacher commuting to school at sunrise in a Subaru cross-trek. Yet, you would drive, ears hammering as they hammer in the purgatory of the MRI. A week before, Yisabella came to you in the classroom and said, Miss, I cannot sleep. Three days, I can't sleep. Her boyfriend called at 2 a.m. and she did not pick up. At 3 a.m., a single shot to the head 
put him to sleep, and he will sleep forever, his body hidden beneath a car in a parking lot on Maple Street, the cops, the television cameras, the neighbors, all gathering at the yellow tape carnival of his corpse. You said to Isabella, take this journal, write it down. You don't have to show me. You don't have to show anyone. On the cover of the journal you bought at the drugstore was the word dream. Isabella sat there in your classroom at your desk, pencil waving in furious circles. By lunchtime, as her friends slapped each other, Isabella slept, head on the desk, face pressed against the pages of the journal. This is why I watch you sleep at 3 a.m. when the sleeping pills fail to quell the strike meeting in my brain. This is why I say to you when you kiss me in my sleep, don't go, don't go. You have to go. As a, a teacher, I, I really love that poem. And the, one of the things I get from that poem is thinking about all the teachers I know and how much uh, caretaking they do mm-hmm. and how much uh, or how little respect they often get. Yeah. Well, that about sums it up, that uh, teachers do more than teach. Mm-hmm. They are caretakers in so many ways and they get so little in the way of respect or reward mm-hmm. um, we we are all familiar now with um, the way in which teachers in this country have been maligned have been scapegoated uh, especially during the pandemic uh, when teachers were trying to prioritize their safety and the safety of their students the safety of their community and instead were castigated um, and uh, I, I think that part of that initiative is coming from the right wing precisely because they understand that um, trade unionism is still alive and well among teachers yeah. that, that that is you know certainly I, I am part of a union at the University of Massachusetts mm-hmm. um, there was a time when Lauren had a union, she doesn't anymore. Um, and the right wing understands that. You castigate or demonize teachers, that's a way of getting at unionism, mm-hmm. oftentimes. Right? Because you, know, you think what, what a small percentage of the population is, is, is still unionized. Yeah. But, but many teachers uh, belong to unions, and but for those unions, the teachers would be even more exploited than they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I can remember Lauren ending up with a student in Springfield in the emergency room because that student had been beaten by her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and Lauren stayed with her, you know, for hours and hours and hours as she was photographed and interrogated by the police. And, you know, this was, this was something she did because it was a logical extension of, of what she always did in the classroom. Um, even now I think about what she does for, for those students and how it, it goes beyond um, what is expected, you know. 
because that commitment is total. That dedication is total. When I read this poem, I always reflect on the fact that her strongest instinct was not to survive. Her strongest instinct was to get in the car and go to work. Her strongest instinct was to get there and take care of those students who needed caring. And this one student in particular uh, in the poem um, whose boyfriend had been murdered and was now uh, sleepless. And, uh, and, and Lauren it, it quite instinctively drove, found, found the school. That's dedication. I can't, I can't find my feet half the time. And, and she, you know, with a concussion and a pretty bad one as it turned out, found the school. Mm-hmm. And then it was the other teachers who noticed she wasn't quite right and brought her to the hospital and then I got a call, you know. Yeah. That's dedication, that's commitment. And that's, that's, ty- that's typical. I, yeah, it is. It really is. Do you have any thought, because you're, you're teaching at UMass, uh, and then of course with all, this, all the students that your wife has and all the experience she has, do you have any thoughts about what both we as teachers and students need to do to raise critical consciousness in the classroom? I think that I struggle with that. And I, I think as a teacher, you're constantly learning, learning how to do it better and how to have these conversations. And I'm kind of curious about your own analysis of where students are these days. You know, I think it's very important for us uh, not to underestimate anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that uh, I, I begin there. I begin with the idea that what what I have to say to you as a student is is something that um, you will not only get, but you'll reflect back to me in a way that I might not have considered myself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so it 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 begins there. Um, I I think you know students, young people understand that there is something fundamentally wrong going on Mm -hmm. and they have an extraordinary innate sense of justice you know whether it applies to them or across the board and and so I begin with that you know I also I'm well aware that what they're hearing from me they may not have heard anywhere else before but having heard it whatever it is you've heard me talking and talking for the last whatever 45 minutes Whatever it is, I, I've, I've seen students grab it and say, yes, this is what I've been thinking all along and this is what I have to say about that. You know, um, it, it, begins with, uh, it begins with establishing some sense of, of trust that may be missing um, in, in other situations, in other settings, in other in other dialogues that that students are uh, engaged with. Uh, all of us, whether we're students or teachers, are living in a society that is quite enamored of euphemism. And whether that euphemism takes the form of uh, uh, bureaucraties, medical ease, legal ease, uh, it's uh, 
the language of uh, power, corporatees. It's the language of power. And that language is used to communicate, not to communicate, but to control. It's, it's used not to clarify, but to obscure. Um, and, and again, I think young people have a very strong sense of when they're being had, mm-hmm. when they're being taken, when they're being misled, you know, and, and they're exhausted by and, and, and frustrated by euphemism and euphemistic language. And we have to, we have to mean what we say if we begin the most fundamental level, that's where we have to start. We have to mean what we say. We have to distill, we have to clarify. Mm. And that's what I try to do in my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's helpful. Thank you for that. I would totally agree with what you said, is that students know something is wrong. I really feel that with my college students. Um, okay, we're going to make time for one more because no one else is coming in right now. There's a, one that I would love for you to read, but there's also ones that you might also have a new one you would like to read. You want me to read a new I one? I think we should leave it yeah. to you with which one you'd like to go out with. Sure. I, you know, poem I've been kind of dying to read somewhere. Okay, great. great. Um, and, of course, uh, now, you know, mind you, when I, I do the reading uh, at the Brattleboro Literary Festival on Saturday, at 11.30 at Epsilon Spires with Doug Anderson. I'll be focused on reading poems from the book Floaters, which you've been listening to during um, the greater part of the hour. However, um, I'm working on a new manuscript, and as I am doing so, I'm revisiting my youth. I I was young once, <laughs> believe it or not. Yes, this this graybeard was young. And so, um, as you know, and listeners know, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. But when I was a teenager, we left Brooklyn and we moved to the promised land, the promised land being Valley Stream, Long Island. Uh, In the mid-70s, Valley Stream, Long Island was the site of what sociologists would call white flight, the escape from the cities uh, into the suburbs to get away from people like, well, us, Puerto Ricans, African Americans, uh, and so forth. And, and so there was a great deal of tension when I ended up in Valley Stream, Long Island. We were the only Puerto Rican family in Valley Stream. And I began thinking lately about some of the things that happened there. Um, and so this goes back to, uh, to my adolescence, and it refers to a great Puerto Rican baseball player by the name of Roberto Clemente, uh, who was not only a great baseball player, but died uh, what we could certainly call a heroic death. Um, uh, His plane crashed into the ocean uh, as he was en route to deliver uh, uh, supplies, uh, relief to hurricane, uh, not hurricane, but uh, earthquake victims in Nicaragua. Um, so th- th- that's the context for the poem, and it, it comes up very directly in the poem. And so this is a new poem called Big Bird Die for Your Sins. Barry was six foot six, 15, like me, floating layups and hook shots over our heads through the hoop in my driveway. 
We called him Big Bird for dwarfing us, for his slappy feet, for the mouth that hung in a grin in all our stories. We called him Big Bird because he would yell foul every time anyone bumped him under the basket, as if we lived on Sesame Street. I liked Big Bird and his white boy, Afro. He never called me a greasy-haired spick under the hoop in my own driveway like Frankie, the clown on the block. On New Year's Eve, Roberto Clemente himself set foot on the prop plane at the airport of Puerto Rico, my father's island. Boxes from Nicaragua stacked up after the earthquake, knowing the dictator's Guardia Nacional would crack open the crate, greedy as a pillaging army if he did not loom over them. The DC-7, engine like a smoker's heart, 4,000 pounds overweight, sputtered a hundred feet above the trees, then spiraled into the sea on a night when the moon deserted the sky, the keeper of a lighthouse dreaming drunk. A crowd kept vigil on the beach. His compañero, the catcher, dove and dove again between the fins to slice the waves till the propeller's twisted hand rose from the sea, but never the body, never the ball player, never Clemente, never. My father told me, Roberto Clemente is dead. I could swear my father's eyes were red. I had never seen my father cry. This must be hay fever in winter. My mother saw him cry once, watching the funeral of JFK on television, the black riderless horse and the empty boots in the stirrups for the fallen. Later, the day after the baseball writers voted Clemente into the Hall of Fame, as the boys under the hoop toweled off and scooped up cokes from a cooler, I said, when my father told me Clemente died, there were tears in his eyes. No one said anything, not even Frankie the Clown. Big Bird stopped grinning. Big Bird was thinking. The whine in his voice was gone when he finally said, they only did that because he was Puerto Rican. They only did that because he was black. I used to see the episode on Sesame Street when Luisa Maria taught Big Bird about the meaning of death, how we all die one day and his yellow head drooped heavy as a sunflower. I feel sad, he said. I could have rolled the numbers out like the dice in my Stratomatic baseball board game. 317 lifetime average, 414 in the 1971 series, 3,000 hits, 12 gold gloves, the only walk-off inside the park grand slam in baseball history. I could have called on the spirit of a dead ball player to flood the screens in their heads with the leap and stab of the ball against the wall in right field that saved the no-hitter with the bark of the ball off his bat that fractured a pitcher's leg. I said nothing. I never said anything. Even when Frankie would croon his favorite song in my face, Spick a Spooka, the other boys would bathe in it. The next game began. I guarded Big Bird. I stomped on his slappy feet, spiked my elbows into his ribcage, rammed shoulder after shoulder into his back, blocked shots by jamming the ball into his sternum. I knew nothing of karate, but kicked the air every time I yanked the rebound away. Foul, 
yelled Big Bird, like a song on the jukebox nobody wanted to hear. Foul. This was my hoop, so I couldn't foul out. I wanted to see Big Bird cry like I saw my father cry. Big Bird sniffed. No one saw him sneeze. He squinted hard, but we all knew. That day, Big Bird died for the sins of the fathers who cursed at the dark ball players on TV in the living room where their sons could hear it all. I had a vision of Big Bird rising above the palm trees, igniting in the air like a feathery piñata too close to the spark of a cigarette, crashing into the sea, the sharks feasting on yellow feathers, Luisa Maria on Sesame Street, explaining the meaning of a puppet's death as the nation mourned. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and when is, so this is from your new, when, when is this coming out for... Oh, uh, well, uh, this is called, uh, this collection is called Jailbreak of Sparrows, and uh, it's still in progress. So okay. we'll, we'll be out for a while. So okay. don't look at it, it uh, don't look for this one <laughs> at, at your neighborhood uh, bookstore. Look for the other one. Look for floaters, floaters. that's still around uh, in hardback and paperback. But, um, you know, you can see how I'm working with some new, new themes, mm-hmm. how I'm looking at my earlier life where I'm it's a poem like this uh, addresses racism but also offers a critique of adolescent masculinity at the same time yeah mm-hmm. you know that this was my response instead yeah. of you you know using I was thinking that you know, yeah and and it's a way of so it's a way of looking back uh, 50 years in my case and you know and uh, and and trying to re-experience that sense of grief but also the the tremendous frustration uh, in my response, the struggle to articulate something that would shut it all down. And you know what? I'm still trying to figure that out. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to find the words to make it stop, mm. which I couldn't do then, and I'm wondering if I can do now. Mm. Yeah. How do we make it stop? Yeah. yeah, I think we're all trying to figure that out, that's for sure. And you can, I know you can get the book Floaters at Duchess Coffee in Brattleboro. Yes, also known as Antidote Books. Yes, great. And um, again, Martina Spada was here with us for the hour, and he is going to be reading alongside Doug Anderson. Yes. At uh, Epsilon Spires as part of the Brattleboro Literary Festival, October 15th. That's next Saturday at 1130. Martina, we want to thank you so much for being here. Yes, it's always a pleasure. You. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for the interview. And once again, thank you for your uh, bravery in saving, <laughs> saving my parking space. We both got safely to the studio. Yeah. Uh, Nina, we're going to go out with a song. Yes, so we're going to go out with a song by Victor Jara. Um, the song is Plejaria a un Labrador, which in English translates to prayer to a peasant. He was assassinated, um, most likely under the dictatorship of Pinochet, who was assassinated in 1973. And he was also a political activist. Um, so we'll go out with that song, and please tune in uh, next week, Sunday, at 1 o'clock to Indigo Radio. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Thank you.
levántate y mira la montaña de dónde viene el viento, el sol y el agua tú que manejas el curso de los ríos tú que sembraste el vuelo de tu alma levántate y mírate las manos para crecer estrecha la tu hermano juntos iremos unidos en la sangre hoy es el tiempo que puede ser mañana líbranos de aquel que nos domina en la miseria tráenos tu reino de justicia e igualdad sopla como el viento la flor de la quebrada Limpia como el fuego el cañón de mi fusil. Hágase por fin tu voluntad aquí en la tierra. Danos tu fuerza y tu valor al combatir. Sopla como el viento la flor de la quebrada. Limpia como el fuego el cañón de mi fusil. Levántate y mírate las manos para crecer, estrechala tu hermano. Juntos iremos unidos en la sangre, ahora y en la hora de nuestra muerte. Amén. Ah, ah, ah. 